So I did my first race and I was horrendous because I didn't know how to swim, I should mention. I'm 23 years old and I don't know how to swim. And triathlon is swim, bike, run in case uh, anybody out there doesn't know. Um, But I did my first race. I came in dead last. I humiliated myself. I ran half the run with my helmet still on. People were laughing at me, but I crossed that line and I had never felt so alive and and felt the way that I so desperately wanted to feel my whole life. And it was on that day that I declared, I am going to be the best in the world in this sport, which was crazy. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that story comes from multi-world champion triathlete, participant, coach, and recent cancer survivor, Siri Lindley who inspires us all to pursue crazy dreams. And on today's episode, Siri shares the obstacles she had to overcome to win gold, how to gain a fearless mindset, and that we're all not just another statistic. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Siri Lindley. Enjoy. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is someone who makes the impossible possible. It's three-time world champion, triathlete world champion, Miss Siri Lindley. Siri, thanks for being with us today. Oh, Kevin, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, it's the third third episode today, Siri, of this triple header. Uh, but for this episode, you know, you're the first guest I've had to put away all of my Apple products for. <laughs> oh, that is so kind of you. Thank you. That's a compliment. Oh, I just, you know, because if I say, hey, Siri, you know, it's just going to pop up and, and my whole show is going to get this. <laughs> oh, so that's and... the reason. Okay. Just <laughs> for that reason. Well, that, here's the question, though. Once that came out with Apple, did you ever have a problem with that? Where always people say, oh, hey, Siri, oh, hey, they, they want well, to like that. Everyone kept saying you should you should ask for royalties, and oh my sure. god, I wish I did. Sure. Um, but now finally, everyone knows how to pronounce my name, and they never make mistakes with that. So I'll take it as a good thing. Wonderful. Well, it's a world class name. It's a world champion name. I'm sure that's why they used it. I'm sure that's why they named it after you. <laughs> but Siri, you're a triathlete. Now, I worked in women's sports in college. I know the grind of uh, an athlete in the athlete's life. But I got to ask you first, what got you into athletics in the first place? I was always into sports. And actually, when it came to college, I went to Brown University and I played field hockey, ice hockey and lacrosse all on the varsity teams. I was just, you know, sports just were my form of connection with other people and learning more about myself and learning how to, uh, you know, communicate with others and achieve things together. And that felt so good for me. Um, So I've always loved athletics and it's where I felt safe. It's where I felt most myself. Uh, So I guess that's what drew me to it. Uh, It's a place where I really felt that I belonged, where as a child, I didn't always feel like I belonged. I was overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and had a lot of issues and OCD and and all these things that made me kind of feel like a crazy person. But through my sports, it made me feel like I belonged and I was normal and I was worthy. 
And so it really was an essential part of my growing up that kept me sane and kept me growing and, and building confidence to be able to achieve the things I have in, in, in my life up until now. Well, that's a common thing among a lot of uh, athletes, especially our girls on the basketball team. It was always, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go play, you know, professionally overseas. I, I got to find a real job. I got to, you know, what were some of the fear and the anxieties that you had as a college athlete um, that you had to overcome? Well, the funny thing is that when I was playing sports, uh, I, that's when I was least anxious and least afraid. Um, the reason why I had developed this OCD is I just, my focus was in all the wrong places. I was constantly focusing on, on what I didn't have and what I feared and what I didn't want to have happen and things that I had no control over. And, and most of that stemmed from my childhood. And I'd become very fearful of, of losing my parents. And, and it was, it was craziness. Like really, I felt like an absolute crazy person. But once I got out on the field, whether it was in lacrosse or on the ice and in ice hockey, it was a place where I could just unleash all that energy and, and release all that tension. And that's where I felt most free. Um, but it was once I made the realization that you know, I used to be one of those athletes, and I think a lot of athletes are, where it's like, oh, I hope I have a good a good game today. And it's like, you know, the universe isn't going to decide whether you have a good game or not. It's up to you. Mm. Like, you are in charge of what happens in your life, how you respond to things, how you react, and, and you're in charge of your entire experience of life. And once I realized that, that I was kind of the conductor of my own symphony of life and that it was up to me to make it great. Um, that's when I really overcame my OCD and really started becoming a great athlete um, because I was focusing instead on, on what I had and, and what I wanted to create and what I loved and what I had all the control over, which was my mindset, my effort, my attitude. And that's what changed everything for me. It, it's, it's simple. But it's very difficult, right? It's like your off-court challenges or experiences really manifest on your on-court performance. What were some of these off-court anxieties or fears or situations that you really had to take time to overcome? I think at the basis of it all, and I think everyone out there can relate on this, is worrying about not being enough, um, worrying about if I'm not enough, I'm not going to be loved. And for me at the time, my parents were divorced. My mom had gone through a really tough time and I was afraid of losing her. So I always felt like I needed to be everything that she needed me to be to, to make sure that she was happy, to make sure that she wanted to live, to make sure that she was safe. So for me, it was always about, am I enough? And I think that as much torture as that kind of brought me as far as making me so fearful and anxious, it really motivated me to want to become something, to want to be a great athlete, to want to get great grades so that it made me feel personally like I was enough. Now, I shouldn't have really had to, you know, my belief now is that you don't have to, you know, be the best athlete in the world or do things perfectly in order to be worthy or to be loved. Like we are all enough. And we are all loved. 
Um, but for me at the time, that was my driving force. And granted, it came from kind of a, a negative pressured state, mm. but it certainly led to uh, me becoming a great athlete at that time. So, so you say you played field hockey, hockey, and remind me the last one, lacrosse, lacrosse in college. Now, triath the triathlete sport is none of those. <laughs> what right. what got you interested in try in being a tri, becoming a triathlete? And who were some of the you already mentioned your mother? Who were some of the, some of the helpful mentors that helped you overcome these fears along the way? Wow. Well, triathlon came about and in playing team sports, I loved it. And we won as a team and we lost as a team. And that was amazing. But I still didn't really know who I was. And and I didn't have a grasp on what I was worth on my own. And for me, I really, so, so if I can share a story with you, that's at the bottom of all of this, I would love to. Um, Okay. Uh, when I realized that I was in charge of my experience of life and, and really, you know, I, Tony Robbins taught me this, where focus goes, energy flows. And I thought, my God, I'm worrying about all these horrible things happening and I'm actually bringing that energy towards me. So instead, I'm going to focus on everything I want and everything I want to create my life. He literally saved my life with those words. And so I was on this mission to kind of discover who I was And in doing so, I realized I was gay. And that was like, great. You know, this is all I need at this point is to deal with the fact that I'm gay, because at that time it wasn't really accepted. And it was a really difficult thing to be. Um, But I accepted it because I just wanted to be me. I wanted to be authentic and I wanted to figure out who I was and, and try to love that person. And, um, after a couple of years, I got a phone call from my father. And I thought that he was sick or he was dying because he was crying and he couldn't get his words out. And when he finally got his words, he said, Siri, somebody told me that you're gay. Like, I beg you, tell me this isn't true because I can't have a daughter that's gay. Tell me it's not true. And I said to him, Dad, like, I'm so sorry, but it is true. And I am gay. And please just can you just love me regardless of that fact? And he hung up the phone and I didn't hear from him for the next two years. Mm. And it absolutely broke my heart. But the other thing that it made me feel is that everything that I had accomplished, and and by this point, you know, I was getting great grades. I was going to an Ivy League university. I was varsity and, you know, getting these awards for all my sports. But that meant absolutely nothing now that I was gay. It's like that fact negated everything that I'd done up until this point. So his rejection really devastated me. But when I look back at it now, it was such a gift because I became so determined, so determined and so intent upon proving to myself, most importantly, that even as a gay woman, I could, you know, set a goal that that seems impossible, but achieve it that I could make a difference in the world, that I could inspire people, that I could be, you know, a great example of of someone that's strong and can achieve great things. So that desire, that will came from that rejection. And it was right after that, that I, I witnessed a triathlon. I went and watched a friend race a triathlon. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing because 
It was people of all ages and sizes and ability levels, but they were all out there like pushing themselves like beyond their limits and doing something that they never thought that they could. And, and they all looked so alive. Mm. And I thought to myself, first of all, like I want to get in on this, but secondly, what an incredible way to find myself and prove to myself what I'm capable of. And so I did my first race and I was horrendous because I didn't know how to swim. I should mention I'm 23 years old and I don't know how to swim and triathlon is swim, bike, running case uh, anybody out there doesn't know. Um, But I did my first race. I came in dead last. I humiliated myself. I ran half the run with my helmet still on. People were laughing at me, but I crossed that line and I had never felt so alive and, and felt the way that I so desperately wanted to feel my whole life. And it was on that day that I declared, I am going to be the best in the world in this sport, which was crazy. It was crazy. I was horrible. But anyway, so that's how I got involved in the sport. And it was driven by a very deep and emotional reason why I had to make this happen. Siri, it's almost like I hear this all the time, though, like it like tragedy, like spurs these moments of reflection and determination. Uh, The one thing that separates leaders and people like yourself from others is action, though. Why do you think so many people struggle with buying the book to read it, to get out on the first triathlon, to start swimming in the waters when they never had before? Why do you think that is? I think it's fear. And I think fear, you know, keeps so many people from being able to truly experience the richness in their lives. But everything extraordinary is on the other side of our fears. And that's something that I've realized is when you're afraid, it's because it does matter to you. It's because you are feeling that tug in your heart or that that instinct in your gut that's telling you go take that first step and it's this invitation and it's so very important to say yes to the invitation and to take that first step no matter how scared you are Mm. because what I've realized through my journey is that we are so much more powerful than we could ever imagine as human beings but we it's like we don't want to believe that because it's scary to think what we're what we really are capable of. And I'm a believer because I'm living proof that the impossible is really possible. But I'm also a believer that you have to you're going to be afraid, but you're going to do it anyway. Mm. And that's that's what courage is, isn't it? So I think it's fear that keeps people from taking that first step. Um, the fear of failing, the fear of being disappointed. And I knew in taking on the sport that I needed to become someone that was willing to fail, you know, understanding that it's through our failures, it's through our disappointments that we learn and we grow the most. That's how we make progress. And I failed over and over again, but every time I got myself back up and I dusted myself off and I thought, okay, what do I need to change so that I can become better? Mm. Um, So really, if you're not willing to fail, you're actually not willing to succeed because failure is just a part of the process of getting to success and facing those fears. So I say, you know, what's that quote? Leap and the net will appear. Um, 
I believe in that so much. Very stoic. Uh, the, the obstacle becomes the way. It becomes how you yes. can identify yourself. You find yourself through overcoming these fears. You understand who yes. you are. Now, I want to keep our audience on this timeline here. Uh, you have this conversation with your father. It didn't go well, but it spurs you to go into triathletes or uh, a, tri- a triathlon. Did not go well. Then what? What came next after the triathlon? And when did you let me maybe take us from there until you won your first triathlon world championship? Well, so I made the decision and I told one person, I told my amazing mom and I said, I'm going to be the best in the world in this sport. And she'd been at that first race of mine and she nearly cried when I said that. And she just said, Siri, look, I will support you for the next two years and, and believe in this with you. But promise me that if after two years, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, that you go back to doing something that you're good at. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, great. But I just I, you know, I immersed myself in the sport. I became obsessed with becoming proficient, you know, learning how to swim, getting a coach reading every book, every magazine, everything I could get a hold of, talking to people that did triathlon. And I just immersed myself entirely. I modeled the very best athletes in the world. I, I literally, I was working 60 hours a week uh, in a deli, making sandwiches, teaching spin classes, just to fund this, this dream of mine. Um, and I had heard that the best athletes in the world came from Australia. So I literally moved to Australia went to the pool where the number one athlete in the world was training, mm. jumped in her lane, even though there's no way it could last even 10 seconds on her feet. And I became friends with this athlete. Her name's McKeely Jones. She was the number one athlete in the world at that time and remains one of the best ever triathletes. I somehow convinced her to rent a room out in her house to me. And I literally, you know, when you model someone, you know, I, I did what she did in training. I ate what she ate. I, I slept when she slept. I, I watched everything she did. And I thought if I do everything that she's doing, it's at least going to take me to a whole new level in my own performance. And so six years after setting this goal, I turned, well, actually, no, three years after setting this goal, I turned professional. Six years after I actually went to the Olympic trials and failed miserably. Um, it was one of the biggest disappointments of my entire career, but it was one of the greatest things that has ever happened to me because it had me shift my focus and change my approach. And within eight years, well, actually the next step of, of this, I'll call it a success formula is when I failed at the Olympic trials, I always remember Tony Robbins telling me proximity is power. And I thought, okay, well, well, who do I need to be around? And, and there was this incredible coach, Tony, uh, Tony Robbins, this incredible coach, Brett Sutton. He was the best coach in the world in triathlon, coached Olympic medalists and world champions. And I knew I had to get him to coach me because I thought how amazing if I can not only be coached by the best coach in the world, but have my training partners be former world champions and Olympic medalists. Like I will learn so much. And he took me on. Um, He had remembered me from a race where I was like in 39th place, but 
he saw me like killing myself to come in 38th place. And he remembered that. And he, he thought that girl's hungry. You know, she's got something inside that it doesn't matter if she's coming in first, second or third, you know, she's going to fight to the very end to be the best her that she can be. And I went to his training camp and I was the worst athlete in the squad. I just got my butt kicked every day and was doing six to eight hours a day of the most brutal training. It was like horrific. I cried in my goggles every day. I was scared to death every day. And, but it was brilliant what he was doing because every day he gave me this epic task that seemed so impossible. And every day I just said to myself, I'm just gonna do the best that I can with what I have and see what happens. And every day I was proving that the impossible was really possible. And it was brilliant because it brought me to this whole new level of self-belief. Because oftentimes, you know, sometimes we look to get that belief in ourselves through other people saying, oh, you're doing great. And oh, you're so talented. But really to achieve that extraordinary success, you've got to believe that yourself. It has to come from inside of you. Mm. And that's what this coach gave me. He put me in a position every single day where I had to prove to myself that I was strong enough, brave enough, had the ability to do these things. And after a few months, I started racing and, and I started winning everything. And it brought me to the world championships and I became a world champion eight years after setting this crazy, crazy goal. And it was the impossible dream coming true. And, and I'm just forever grateful for the whole experience. That is amazing. Now I'm gonna throw one at you right here, Siri. When you cross that finish line, you break the tape, you're the first person to do that in the race, right? Now, were you more excited about the extrins- the, ex- the external uh, validation of this, receiving a trophy, being number one, or was it something more that you just had to prove to yourself as more internal? You're so smart because you are spot on. Um, it had nothing to do with the people in the stands and people running up to me. It had everything to do. Like the first thing I did, I crossed the line and I just said, thank you. And I thought, you know, in this moment, I'd never felt so blessed than in that very moment. And it was because in that moment, I felt such a deep love for myself and pride for everything that I put in for the fact that I did fall down so many times, but I never gave up. I believed that I could, that I backed myself. It feels good when you back yourself, you know? Mm. And that was the gift. The gift was really feeling my own love for myself. And that's not in a way like, Oh, I love myself, but it's like, I had been looking for my own love for a, a lifetime. And you know, yes, it, it took a lot for me to receive that from myself. And I really do believe that you don't have to go win a world championship to deserve your own love. But for me, for whatever reason, that's what it took for me to believe in myself, not just love myself, but to believe in myself and to believe that I am worthy and I can make a difference in this world. That was a gift and it was the most beautiful gift I've ever received. And I gave it to myself and we all have the opportunity to do that in our own lives. 
Mm. You're winning, winning from within. I love it. Yes. Now, yes. I, I watched your speech at the Hall of Fame, and I don't. I might be messed up on my timeline here, but you win these world championships, and then does Ralph Lauren approach you? And if they, when they did, would you mind sharing our audience what they told you, and maybe give our, our audience a little context behind the situation? Well, I actually had not started winning yet at this point. And it just goes to show that when you get support, it changes everything for you. That's the positive in this. Um, But Ralph Lauren approached me. They had this incredible line called RLX, which was their sporting line of clothes. And they were developing a triathlon team. And they approached me and I couldn't believe it because I hadn't done anything yet. And I was just like, Uh, I was just ecstatic. And so I went in for a meeting and they were interviewing me and making sure I was the right fit. And and we got along great. But at the end of the conversation, the guy said to me, he said, look, I really, you know, this is a family oriented company and everyone else on the team is either married or they have a boyfriend or they have a girlfriend. Um, please, if you can, just keep up this image, maybe get a boyfriend. And how about you grow your hair long? Because I had really short hair at the time. This hair being short is for another reason. But, um, and right about at that time, I had just started telling people about the fact that I was gay. But I went in there and they were offering me this incredible deal for someone that hadn't achieved anything yet. And they were basically saying like people are going to think you're gay which I was and we need to change your image if you're going to fit on this team and that was devastating but I tell you what Kevin I I you know I had just stepped out of the closet and I walked out that door and I went back in the closet and I slammed the door shut and in a sense, you know, I used to feel shame about that decision because it wasn't taking a chance on me, you know? Um, but at that time I just so needed support. You know, you're traveling all around the world for the world cup races. You're spending thousands and thousands of dollars and I wasn't winning yet. And here I suddenly had someone that was willing to pay all my travel and hook me up with all my equipment and my uniform and everything. And I just, you know, my dream was more important Mm -hmm. and it really did their support. I mean, right. That, that next year I won the world championship. And I do believe that when you have that support, when you have that backing, it just removes the pressures that get in the way of you being able to perform to your utmost ability. I'm not saying it's impossible, you know, because I, I believe that anything is possible and I could have achieved it even without their support, but I would have done it with a lot more stress. Hmm. But that was hard for me. You know, I, I sacrificed my own values and, and my own, um, you know, moving forward on my own path uh, for, for that opportunity, I guess. Thanks for sharing that. It's just, it was an incredible story to me when I heard that. And remind me, what year was that exactly? Just so I have a date. That would have been, I think, in 2000. 2000. And I won the world championship in 2001. 
Okay, so when you see uh, the gay rights movement, uh, you know, just and just gay pride in uh, female sports and, and male sports as well. I know working with the women's basketball team, we, we were in it every day. Um, when you see that now, does, does it put a smile on your face? What do you see for? Uh, what do you hope for athletes who were used to deal with those, uh, you know, the struggles of being inside the closet? Oh, I hope they, and I don't think they really will have to deal with that. I hope not because I feel like the times have changed so beautifully and my heart just sings when I see, you know, and now I made a decision when I retired from triathlon because I was ready to retire after I won the world championship. After that, I said, I will never, ever uh, push my own self aside. I need to be fearlessly, authentically me mm. in every moment. Because when we are fearlessly, authentically ourselves, we are our most powerful. That's when we can truly give from all our heart and, and have deeper, richer relationships and, and have a greater impact on the world. And so I, I literally, after that, I, I promised myself that I would never, ever compromise again on that. And I feel that... You know, when I go out and speak, I have the incredible privilege of, of speaking on Tony Robbins stage and, and around the country for Kepler speakers. I always just speak very openly about being gay and my wife and I don't make it an issue. I don't say, oh, yeah, well, I'm gay and my wife. It's just it's just my this is just who I am. And this is my story. And it's changed my life for the better. I feel free. I feel liberated. I feel empowered. So I think that we are headed in the right direction as far as really uh, bringing together all sorts of people, no matter what their sexual preference is or whether they're gay or straight or trans, that we are all human, we're all people, and we all can make a beautiful difference in this world. And I love that, and I celebrate that, and I will do anything I can to continue uh, that kind of energy. And, and I mean, talk about transformation. I mean, who was Siri Lindley before triathlete sports? And then who are you now? Wow. Uh, before triathlon, I was a pleaser. Uh, I wanted to, I just was trying to be everything I thought I needed to be to fit in or to make everyone else happy. And that's another thing I needed to let go of on this journey in order. I knew that in order to succeed and to make this dream come true, I needed to let go of trying to please and be what I thought I needed to be for others. I needed to be fearlessly, authentically me. That was the goal. And I needed to become willing to fail. Those were like the two most important things that had to happen right there in the beginning. And obviously the being fearlessly authentically me took a little bit of a hit with Ralph Lauren, but that struck me so deeply as far as I lost a little bit of respect for myself when I did that. And that shook me to the core. And I knew that one day I was going to turn that around and make up for that and make up, make up immensely for that. And so the Siri Lindley now is someone who I will not compromise my authenticity. I wrote a book a few years ago and I actually had started writing it about 10 years ago, but I was about halfway through and I thought this is going to have no impact because I'm not willing to share everything about my story. So I put it away. 
And then about 10 years later, I don't know if it's 10 years, but something like that, I was ready. Mm. And I thought in order to truly make a difference in this world, we need to be vulnerable. We need to share the times when we were afraid, the times that we failed, the times that we were hurt or disappointed. Like we need to share those things because otherwise, if I went around saying, oh yeah, you know, I took up triathlon, I loved it, I worked hard and I became a world champion, then other people go out after their dream and, and they work hard, but they they fail every once in a while and they get disappointed and they say, well, I guess this isn't meant for me because I'm not meant to fail. It's meant to be easy. So I am, as a coach, I am so vulnerable with my athletes as, as far as sharing every aspect of my journey, the good, the bad, the ugly, the times where I was proud of myself, the times where I was disappointed in myself so that they know that they are not alone in feeling afraid or feeling anxious and that you can become a world champion and the best in the world, even if you are afraid mm. or even if you are doubting yourself. So I, I get vulnerable. I share my story because I feel that, that that is a really powerful way to help others believe in their dreams and help others believe in the path that they're on and help them find a way to their own self-love and self-belief. I think it's so important. So that's why you became a coach. You didn't just stop being an athlete you said i can't i want to give the inspiration give my knowledge give this fearless leadership to the others who came after who come after me to live on the legacy what has coaching done for you uh who are some of the athletes you work with and why do you find it so inspiring oh it's so incredibly inspiring you know i found what i was looking for and when i won the world championships and i i was ready to retire on that day but then I thought about how we are all our own biggest critics. And I knew that after a few months, I'd start saying stuff like, oh, Siri, you just got lucky, or oh, that was just like a miracle. And I'd start doubting whether I had really earned it or deserved it. And I didn't want that to happen. So I challenged myself again. And I said, I want to put together another year where I win races and finish and number one in the world. And that's when I'll retire because that will be the proof that yes, I belong. Yes, I am the real deal. And yes, this was you. So I did that. I put together another year. I was number one in the world again. And then I was just so excited. I learned so much. And being someone that truly, you know, people that knew what I wanted to achieve in the sport, they, they laughed at me because it was a joke. It seems so impossible. But I believe that that was something that was going to really help me as a coach because I, I see the potential, even in someone that really sucks in the beginning, I see the potential and I can feel their fire. And if, if they truly have an intention to do whatever it takes to make their dream come true, I feel that and I commit to that. But when I started coaching, when an athlete would come to me with their dream, I, I felt like it was the ultimate privilege. Like here, this athlete is handing me their dream. It's like gold. And I would put my entire heart and soul into make, helping them make their dream come true because I knew how that just would change their lives, the whole journey, you know, mind, body, and spirit. And I've had the privilege of <laughs> witnessing some of the most incredible athletes, Marinda Carfrey, is I coached her for about 14 years, minus one year in, in the middle there. And we together 
won three Ironman World Championships, one half Ironman World Championship. And she's someone, same thing. You know, she, she was a basketball player and people were like, oh, you're doing triathlon. You don't even know how to swim. It was a very similar thing. But over 14 years, we built her into this machine that just was full of fire and energy. And she accomplished so much and her winning her first world championship when I was there at the finish line, that was like the greatest moment ever. That, that felt even more amazing in a certain way than my own world championship Mm -hmm. victory, Mm -hmm. knowing that I could help another uh, achieve their personal best. And Leanda Cave is an athlete who came on. Uh, Rennie had left me. Uh, well, I'll, sorry, Miranda is her name. And her nickname is Rennie. Um, I was coaching her for about six years. And we went to the Hawaii Ironman World Championships. And the first year we came in second. The second year we won it. And the third year, I think she came in third. And when she came in third, she was really disappointed. And she came to me and she said, I think I need to find another coach because, you know, I don't want to be third. I want to be first. And I was like heartbroken. Like, I'm like, I can't believe it made me feel again. And you can see kind of the pattern in my life. Like she doesn't think I played any part in her success. And it made me feel terrible. But again, I took that and I was like, I will prove to her that I mattered in this equation. I will prove to her that she won these races because of our teamwork together. So that year I took on another athlete, Leanda Cave, and she was an older athlete and everybody was saying, oh, her nickname was The Bird. And everybody was saying, oh, The Bird, she's done. And And I said, no, you know what? She wants to win the Hawaii Ironman. She wants to be a world champion at the Ironman distance and I believe in her and I took her on and we just, Oh my God, both of us just put our entire lives into making this happen. And that year when Rennie wasn't with me, uh, Leanna and I went to the world championships and she became the world champion. And it was the like such an incredible moment. It was amazing. And after that race, Rennie came back. Um, she, had the courage to say, I made a mistake. I want to come back. And we won two more world championships after that in 2013 and 14. So, you know, I've had the the incredible privilege of having athletes come to me with their dreams and they're not all champions, but it's seen someone going from being a couch potato to being healthy, fit and strong and, and having confidence in themselves. And it's just so fulfilling an incredible journey. It's been. And it seems like you've taken a lot of things from Brett's tutelage and applied it to uh, your coaching for Rindy and the bird. Now, uh, you mentioned in one of Brett's examples with you was your surroundings and who you surround yourself with. A lot of sacrifice has come from this. Now, do you consider these things sacrifice you have to give up in order to get? How do you perceive sacrifice in order to be a champion? I don't see it as sacrifice. And I think it's so important to reframe and reframe with the truth that this isn't a sacrifice. This is a part of the recipe that that has to be taken care of in order to make this happen. So for me, I would look upon it as this incredible opportunity. It's not a sacrifice. It's an opportunity 
to learn, to grow, to improve, uh, to toughen up whatever, whatever was needed in that moment. Um, but it's never a sacrifice. And if you look upon it as a sacrifice, that carries this negative energy that I think weighs you down a little bit. And, and you don't want that. If you want to achieve something great, you want to feel a flow. You want to feel this being pulled towards something. And therefore, everything that we had to do was an opportunity. We get to go do this to make this happen. Now, Sierra, you mentioned your hair is a little bit shorter now than it was when they told you to cut it off. What do you mean by that? So that's a great question. Well, I think everything I've been through in my life has prepared me for what has proven to be the hardest challenge of my life. And in November of 2019, I got a phone call from my doctor and he told me, I had acute myeloid leukemia and a gene mutation that was going to make it really, really hard to, uh, to fix. And, um, in that moment, uh, my world was turned upside down. I was terrified. I was like paralyzed because I just couldn't believe this was happening to me. But also something really powerful happened in that moment. Uh, my wife was there and, and she was listening to my doctor on the phone. We had him on speaker and she just started crying, just tears coming down her face. And I looked at her and I started crying, but I'd never felt her love so deep. I'd never felt my love for her so deep. Like in that moment, I was just overcome with this intensity of love mm. And in that moment, like I made a decision, just like I made a decision way back when, like I'm going to be the best in the world. I declared, I said, this is not my time to go. I, I am going to survive and I'm going to thrive and we are going to get through this. And I made that decision. And that meant that every single thought that I had in my mind, I would redirect and reframe and discipline every thought so that I would think a thought that would strengthen me, not weaken me, a, a thought that would empower me, not make me afraid. And, you know, it was, it was terrifying. I'll tell you a story. I, I got, I, I announced it on social media told everyone what was happening, but I was really positive. I was like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to survive and I'm going to thrive. And this woman wrote me on social media and she said, how can you be so positive? You know that your chances of survival are less than 10%. Oof. First of all, I couldn't believe she said this. To Don't me. listen to those guys. <laughs> can't listen and to I took a deep breath and I wrote her back and I said, I am not a statistic. I am Siri Lindley. And I've proven that the impossible is really possible. And I will do that again. I will triumph. And it fired me up again. Like these things kind of fire you up, but it's how you look at it. I could have let her comment deflate me and start obsessing over the statistics of this. But instead, I chose me and I chose to access my proof. And we all have proof. Think about the times in your life where you overcame something that you never thought you would get through or when you achieve something that you seemed was that you thought was impossible like you achieved it like go back and access your proof because we all have it and I relied on that proof I had this picture on my wall of me winning the world championships 
And in my hospital room, I was in the hospital for over a month. I had that up on my wall. And every morning when I woke up, if I felt scared or terrified or didn't know if I was, would make it, I looked at that picture and it reminded me of who I am. I am not one. I am not going to let this get the best of me. I will survive. So I lost all my hair, obviously. Um, it's coming back. It's crazy because I used to have blonde hair and right. flat as can be. And it's come back like black and curly. But I'm like, whatever you want to give me, God, I'll take it. I'm alive. And I am, just so you know, um, I can share the incredible news that I am cancer free let's go and i get to live and it's just the greatest miracle in the world and i am not going to waste a single moment kevin i just want to touch lives and make a difference and and see every other person out there being able to live their lives to the fullest and and receiving all the gifts that we're also capable of receiving it's powerful. It's euphoric. It's inspirational. Let's all give uh, Siri a, a little cheer in the chat box. A little, <laughs> little, little clap going here, folks. Now, guys. this is interesting, though. Here's a question. You're spiritual. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? What were some of the other things that kept you going through this uncertain time? I absolutely believe that everything happens for a reason. And I think that was really important. That belief really helped me because in the beginning, I needed to reframe what was happening. I didn't want to look at it as why me, why me, why this horrible thing happening to me. And instead I thought, okay, this is happening for a reason. I am meant to learn something from this. And so I kept my eyes open to what I was going to learn through this process. Um, I learned that and it really reinforced the fact that I have a champion inside of me. You know, that champion that won the world championships is still inside of me. And now that champion needs to surface and take on a different role. And that role was going to be incorporating a routine every single day. I did the same routine that was taking care of my mind, my body, my spirit. I meditated, I read, I was doing um, electrical charging because I learned from this, uh, this incredible doctor about charging and how when we keep the electrical charge in our body, it allows for more healing. Um, I used every tool, every so mind. Go into that, go into that a little bit further. What is that? <laughs> um, it's, there's a, a guy called Dr. Jerry Tennant and he has these electrical charging plates and a transducer. His philosophy is that when we lose electrical charge in our bodies to certain parts of our bodies, it, it leads to degeneration and like you're ailing or disease. But when we keep the electrical charge going every single day, it allows the flow of energy and allows for healing. Now, I would say, who knows if, if this is real or not, true or not, but through my experience in using these plates every single day, I my goal was to, to have this routine that would see me go into my treatments as strong as I could possibly be and come out of my bone marrow to heal as efficiently and effectively as possible. And this was a part of my routine every single day. And you know, I am here today. So I believe that it played 
a really important role. That along with, you know, so much work on my soul, you know, kind of sweeping my soul, I call it, like forgiving people that have hurt me and and forgiving myself for certain mistakes that I made um, and clearing out my soul and, and having it be a free space where healing could move through. Um, but this routine that I did every single day, it gave me certainty. It made me feel like I was leaving no stone unturned as far as taking care of myself and doing everything that I could to heal. Now, Sierra, I hear you're an animal lover. Uh, yes. Tell me a little bit about these horses, how you figured out this problem and, and why you're pursuing uh, something as incredible like this. Well, first of all, I'll say that these horses have helped me heal entirely. And not just that, but when basically in 2016, I rescued a horse and her name is Savannah. And she came into my life and pushed me to all new levels of self-discovery. It was amazing. I mean, she helped me overcome fears like horses require. If you want to have a good relationship with a horse, you need to prove to them that you can be their leader, that you can in a kind and fair way, you can lead them and they can count on you. And it really helped me step into my power and build more confidence and, and, and be more courageous. I, I know it looks like I was really courageous before, but um, I needed more courage to do the things that I have in my heart that I really want to do. So I have this horse and, and one day I thought to myself, what am I saving her from? And I got online and I Googled, why would I need to rescue a horse? And this video came up. And to this day, I can't find this video, but this video came up and it showed the brutal slaughter of horses for human consumption. And it was the most horrific, horrible thing I've ever seen. Horses have, have long heads. And so when you go to stun a horse, you know, they they get afraid and they whip their heads around. So it often takes, you know, five or six or seven blows to the head. It's horrible. And they get dismembered while they're still alive. It was the most brutal thing I've ever seen in my life. And I literally, I'm not being dramatic, but I fell to the ground and I was crying out loud. And my wife came running up the steps and she's like, my God, what happened? Are you okay? And I pointed at the screen and she watched this video and she started crying and we looked in each other's eyes and we knew our lives were never going to be the same again. We had to do something like this was just awful. So we uh, developed Believe Ranch and Rescue, which is our nonprofit. And we started rescuing horses from the slaughter pipeline. And in three years, we've rescued 116 horses from slaughter. And many of them have gone on to heal humans through equine therapy, you know, at different organizations around the country. And equine therapy has been proven to be such a powerful form of healing for things like PTSD and depression, addiction. It, it helps kids with disabilities and autism. Like these horses are healers. And so after three years, we'd saved 116, but we thought we, we've got to stop horse slaughter altogether. And so we started learning more about it. And, and we got together the most incredible team, Chris Hyde, who actually wrote this bill called the SAFE Act. Um, the SAFE Act is a bill that will ban the slaughter of horses and make it 
illegal to transport them across country lines into Canada and Mexico to be slaughtered for human consumption. He's been trying to pass this bill for 19 years. So we developed another nonprofit, Horses in Our Hands. And what we've been doing is we raised a half a million dollars in February, and we are working at lobbying and and raising awareness around the country about what's happening so that we can pass this SAFE Act immediately and end the slaughter of horses. Because basically this this is a bipartisan uh, legislation. Both sides agree upon it. And 80% of Americans believe that the slaughter of horses for human consumption is wrong. They want to ban slaughter. So here's this bill that everybody wants, basically, but it needed a push and it needed we needed to raise awareness. So horses in our hands, horses in our hands uh, took this on. And we really feel like we've done a pretty incredible job and we're getting really close to, to making this happen. We have an incredible team behind us. My wife, Rebecca, is absolutely incredible and has been spearheading this whole thing. Chris Hyde and and just an amazing team. I won't mention all their names, but yeah, that's what we're doing now. Okay, Siri, a couple things. How many horses are being slaughtered a year? And then two, what is potentially blocking this bill from passing? So 60,000 horses a year are transported for slaughter. Uh, we don't have slaughterhouses in the U.S. anymore because they were shut or they weren't shut down, but they realized that it was very unhealthy. The meat wasn't safe to be selling. And thank God they shut them down. But um, 60,000 horses a year, um, people that go up against us uh, say things like, you know, what 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 do we do with the unwanted horses? And the thing is that unwanted horses is a term that people that want horses slaughtered use to make it seem like this is a necessary thing that's happening. Hmm. But really, um, 93% of the horses that get bought by kill buyers and are sent to slaughter are healthy, young, sound horses because they're, they get sold by the pound. So the bigger and healthier the horse the more money the kill buyers will make on selling them. Um, but there will not be unwanted horses. When we pass the SAFE Act, there might be a thousand horses in the pipeline that we need to find homes for. But there are 700 horse rescues that I know of in the country that could take in those horses very easily because that's what we do. Um, because horse slaughter is a demand-driven business. So if the demand isn't there, then they, they wouldn't be having to do this. So we take away, it's, it's not a dumping ground for healthy horses, which some people think, okay, these horses, again, are 93% of them are healthy and sound. And what it means when we pass the SAFE Act is that horse owners will have to be more responsible. And if they can't be responsible, they go to a rescue and the rescues will be responsible for their horses. Um, but it's just the most inherently cruel practice, number one. It's not necessary. The meat that is being sold from these horses is actually toxic because of the unregulated um, use of, of drugs and steroids and horses and right. medicines that they have. Um, so the SAFE Act, it must be passed. We're just trying to raise awareness. We know that 80% of, 
of people want the Safe Act passed. It's more just raising the awareness so that it becomes uh, something that is critical to be passed and that we get it on the floor. Right now it's sitting in, in both houses. Um, we just need to get it on the floor. And we know that if it gets there, we really feel confident that it will pass. Savagery. I can't believe something like that's happening in today's day and age in 2020. Now, I saw a few links fly in. How can people listening to this help out? So I'm sure my wife is on sending those links through, but um, you can go to our website, www.horsesinourhands.org. Um, we are on Instagram. We're as Horses in Our Hands. We're on Twitter at Horses in Our Hands. Um, and please, it takes 60 seconds. Literally, we, we have it all set up on our website where you click a, a bar that says help ban horse slaughter now. It takes 60 seconds. You put in your information. Your information will not be shared publicly. It's just for this one thing. And we will send a letter to your local legislator on your behalf. And it takes 60 seconds. And these letters have an enormous impact. So far, I believe we've had like 65,000 letters sent to legislators. And what that does is it wakes them up to the issue and it motivates them to move the bill. So we would love to have your support, please. And thank you. I mean, it'd be a miracle if they could just pass anything at this point. So let's just hope that works yeah don't no, definitely go online I've, I've done a few of these before very simple folks go onto the line we'll we'll put it in the bio of the uh, the podcast thank you uh, and make sure people can access it uh, fairly easily but if you're listening to this on linkedin listening to this on crowdcast go online and just fill a few things quickly submit uh, that letter that will reach uh, someone in the decision making capability now siri we've covered a lot today Okay, we've covered uh, your your trials to become a world champion, uh, the transition to becoming a coach, uh, the sacrifices or the the opportunities that we saw in between battling through cancer and now saving sixty thousand horses, uh, healthy horses, a year. Uh, advice now, Siri. Advice now for people listening to this that say, you know, I don't know how to swim, you know, I, I don't know how to make change in my local government. What advice would you give to them? Take that first step. It is so empowering to just, you can be afraid and you can acknowledge that fear, but have the courage to take that first step. That's when you become truly alive. And there's, there's this amazing quote, Michelangelo. He said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set her free. And what that's about is that we all have this unlimited potential inside of us. But if you want to release that and you want to allow your angel to shine and and have an impact on the world and achieve your dreams, you have to believe in this and you have to do the work. You've got to chip away at that marble. And part of that marble is being afraid. Chip away at your fear and understand that everything magnificent is on the other side of of your fear. So take that first step. And as far as being leaders in the world, I truly believe be fearlessly authentic, know what you want, understand what your values are, be you, because that is when you are most powerful, when you are being fearlessly, authentically you. And third thing, believe in miracles. You said it would take a miracle to pass anything right now. I believe we're going to pass this bill. I believed in miracles before and every single time um, I haven't been proven wrong. 
So believe in miracles, but also know that you are in charge of your experience of life. It's up to you. You can't sit back and wait for things to happen. You need to take action and you need to believe in you, back yourself and go for it. I love it. Pursuing these obstacles to find yourself, having a sense of belief, great traits of leadership. Siri Lindley, the last question we have for you today is, what is your definition of a real leader? Uh, well, I think I, I think you're getting the sense that a real leader is someone that's fearlessly authentic, that isn't afraid to be real in every moment and, and expects that from others. I want you to be real with me. Um, that communication. And I believe that when we are truly authentic and real, our relationships are deeper. That trust is deeper. That belief in one another is deeper. And there's no, I, I just, people need to know that to achieve great things, it's not this easy path where you never fail, or you're never disappointed. So when we are real as leaders, which I love the name of your podcast and, and everything about real leaders, um, we're real. We're going after, we're passionate about what we believe in and our intention is pure and we are authentic and we're vulnerable and we're willing to do whatever it takes to make our dreams come true. Well put, Siri. Just want to appreciate you coming on the Real Ears podcast you. today. The three, the three of three, the third of the third triple header today here on Crowdcast and on LinkedIn for Siri Lindley. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be fearlessly authentic, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Siri. Thank you so much, Kevin. You're awesome. And you're awesome because you listened to the Real Ears podcast and you hung on for all one hour and one minute of this episode. Folks, if you want to join the conversation, you want to watch this interview live or just be notified of the next interview with a real leader, just click the link in this description. There should be a link that starts with Crowdcast. Just click the Crowdcast link, enter in your name and email, and you will be notified of upcoming interviews with real leaders also you can follow us on any social media channel to be notified or just make sure that you're getting updates uh we'd always like to take clips from these interviews and just push them out there so if you need a little daily inspiration and you're looking to become a better leader and improve your leadership skills every single day follow one of our accounts at real underscore leaders that's it for me thank you all so much for hanging on and always folks keep it real